Now, Nathan, the prison strike began August 21st and ended September 9th, and I gather that those dates are of historical significance. They are. Um, the date of the 21st of August, 1971, is the anniversary of George Jackson's killing in San Quentin, California, a very important activist and theorist, really, of prisons. And the 9th of September is when the Attica Prison Rebellion began after the killing of Jackson in September 9th of that same year, of 1971. Incidentally, the 21st of August in 1831 is also the anniversary of Nat Turner's rebellion. And so, again, the idea that the strike is in some ways about rebelling against wage slavery, I, th- I think, is also meant to hearken to that date. Hmm. Now, we just heard Brian's interview of about a decade ago with that prison work crew, this year that the prison strikers were protesting the practice of using prisoners as a kind of cheap or free labor who could be farmed out. And that's obviously, Brian, I think, a very long story here in the U.S. Yeah, it sure is, Joanne. Uh, it really goes back as far as penitentiaries go. Uh Work in prison and the value of work in prison, even before the Civil War, uh, was really quite important to a number of local economies. Um, At the end of the Civil War, 1865, uh, it's estimated that the value of work done in prisons was almost $30 million. Now, Mm. that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's worth billions of dollars uh, in today's economy. Um, I think running alongside that, certainly for part of the long span of American history, is the idea that somehow or other prison can reform you, that it's a a place where you go to be improved Mm. or reformed. You're absolutely right, Joanne. In fact, I want to share with you the name of one of my favorite societies in all of American history. It's the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons. Uh, It started in the 1780s, and Ben Franklin was a member at one point. But I'm going to throw it right back at you because something tells me you know more about (laughs) the Enlightenment ideas that informed this kind of thinking than I do. Indeed. The the idea of using prison to reform the people who are within that prison is kind of born of the Enlightenment and, and born of this idea that um, the the society that you're living in and, and its government can really shape your character. And so the idea then of prisons is if you create somehow an environment that will shape the character of the people within it, that in some way or another you can reform these individuals and then release them out into society. Well, Joanne, you've got your enlightenment and I've got my experts, uh, but they're really connected uh, in this idea of rehabilitation because by the mm-hmm. 20th century, uh, social scientists, psychologists, educators, sociologists, they all come along and say, you know, we can make prisons a place where people can be rehabilitated and turned back into good citizens. And uh, one of the models of that was started in Massachusetts, no surprise there, the Norfolk prison colony. Uh, And the prisoners wore regular uniforms Mm -hmm. there. Uh, The prison was staffed with psychiatrists and educators. And the prisoners themselves actually had a role in governing uh, the prison. And perhaps its most famous prisoner was Malcolm X. uh, And he really... Um, got experience in public speaking by joining the prison debate societies. Hmm. 
Now, you, you bring up Malcolm X, which then leads me to want to ask another question, which is um, there's also obviously a tradition of prison protest, too. There is. There is. And, you know, I think we have a, a way of realizing now just how important these prisons were for really, really unintentionally so as places of political education, people finding ways to work the system, to figure out legal channels for getting reform or trying to make movements that are built around people sharing legal documents and conferring about their rights. And so, you know, the, the Nation of Islam was one of these organizations that had a large and vibrant life inside prisons of people learning how to make petitions to the system and try to initiate reform. But even the civil rights movement as a whole has a, a history that runs parallel from the direct action moments in the streets to the moments behind bars trying to secure better conditions. And so, you know, the, the fact that you have someone like Malcolm X on the one hand, but also someone like Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King or any number of activists who spend time behind bars who then also are able to have a really unique vantage point from which to then raise critiques about the justness of American society. It almost goes without saying that one really gets a sense of what democracy is worth from behind the bars of a cage. Now, Nathan, I love your comment about how you can tell so much about American society by viewing it through the bars of a prison cell, because, you know, it's it's hard, I think, today to look at prisons with any kind of positivity, hmm. given where we are. But, you know, in Early America, when I think about prisons, I, I think about this moment in time when um, insane asylums and prisons and right. any other numbers of kinds of places where people were sheltered and, and kept if they were problematic in some way, there was an assumption, a kind of optimistic assumption in early America that if you framed them the right way and built them the right way and sort of made it so that the environment that people were living in was just right— that it would mm -hmm. sort of stamp mm -hmm. their character in some kind of a way. I'm wondering when in the 19th century does it really make that flip? Like when is that abandoned? When does it really become, when does the forced labor component of it really become more prevalent? Well, well by a lot of measures, it, it begins after the end of Reconstruction. Um, mm. You know, particularly in the South, you see a real inversion of the uses of formal state incarceration. Initially, when you think about the incarcerated population of the postbellum period, most of them aren't really African-American because they're newly freed from the plantation and only very quickly in the wake of expanding surveillance and other kinds of responses to disenfranchisement do you begin to see you know, people of color, and particularly African-Americans, begin to balloon in the prison population in the South, mm. and they actually begin to outstrip you know, their white counterparts in, in that particular place in society. And so the, the very famous or somewhat infamous formulation of, of slavery by another name is really a post-bellum, really post-reconstruction problem. And in that case, absolutely, rehabilitation is not the issue. It's about driving down the cost of labor. It's about finding ways to keep politically uh, disempowered the communities from which these people come. And in some ways, you know, keeping a sense of order that is monitored by the law enforcement state. And that's going to be paying all kinds of dividends for the folks who are running the businesses that draw in prison labor and the folks who are running for office safely because much of the population is disenfranchised. And the prisoners that Nathan was talking about, African-American men in late 19th century America, would have been citizens if they hadn't mm -hmm. been imprisoned. And I have to feel uh, that there was 
a lot more at stake uh, when you are imprisoning would-be citizens or, I think it's fair to say, stripping citizenship from African Americans. So I have a story for you guys. I'll tell you a story that my, that my grandfather tells me. And it's about his time as a kid. He's not in the United States. He's a kid in Jamaica. And he lives right off the water in Kingston. And he lives literally a stone's throw from the outside of the wall of the Kingston Penitentiary on Tower Street. And you have to understand that in in Jamaica, the people who live on the waterfront are the poorest of the poor. So the affluent live in the hills and the poor live down by the water with the fishmongers and by the oil and and the harbor and all of that. And he tells a story about being a kid and just as the sun is going down and the colors on the bricks of the, of the prison on Tower Street are beginning to turn, everyone is standing outside the prison walls and they're waiting and they're waiting. And suddenly over the walls come these giant loaves of cornbread, still warm, over the walls and to all of the impoverished people who are living outside the prison. And crowds are gathered around and they're scooping up these loaves off the ground. Some are catching them in midair to the sound of cheers. And it's this huge mystery about what exactly is happening inside the prison to make it possible for this bread to come out and to be feeding the poor folks on the waterfront in Kingston. And my grandfather tells his stories oftentimes with with tears in his eyes because for him, it's a testament of just how poor the folks were on the outside, that the prisoners on the inside were aware of this and basically providing them with surplus food that was all being spent because of this massively bloated carceral budget that the British colonial officials had in Jamaica at the time. And for me, it it, it strikes me as, as a really powerful metaphor for a lot of the really good and powerful sustenance that can come from prisons. When we listen to what prisoners say, when you think about, you know, the poetry of incarcerated children or all of the great thinkers whose writings in prison have moved, you know, forward a whole bunch of fields that we, you know, consider to be our own, whether history or anything else. And so, I don't know, I, I just wanted to, to, to think for a minute about how we would all be much poorer and much worse off if there weren't folks in prison who hadn't lost their humanity and decided to share some of that stuff that they had inside with us, you know? Well, and I, what comes to my mind, Nathan, and what's so poignant for me in your story is that direct connection between the people inside the prison and the people outside the prison. And mm-hmm. too often, I think we want to lock people up and throw away the key. We want to forget about that connection. We want to forget about that vision from within the bars, as you talked about earlier, uh, that really can make us all think more carefully about what it means to live in a so-called free society. 